Hi, and welcome to People at Work, a series of podcasts designed to help you get the most out of yourself, the best out of others, and the most out of your organization at work. I'm going to talk today about another heuristic. I'm going to talk about the scarcity heuristic. It's a heuristic that has enormous relevance for economics and consumer choices, but it's also really useful for managers. Let me start with an example from my own experience. I go into a mobile phone shop and I'm there simply because I'm bored and I need to kill a quarter of an hour before picking my daughter up from school. I'm idly looking at one handset after another and I find a phone that I quite like, so I begin to look at it. And rather casually, I say to Jill, store manager, how much is this? And she tells me the price. But then, after a pause, she adds, but I'm not sure that we have any of those left. And the magic happens. Ten seconds ago, I was casually interested in maybe looking at a new mobile phone. Now I've been told I can't have one. And that spark of scarcity has made my casual interest catch fire. I didn't really want the phone. But now I can't have it, I'm beginning to want it more. I was a pretty cold customer, but now I'm beginning to burn with frustrated desire. So we get some more theatre. Jill says to Jack, retail business consultant, Jack, can you look in the back and see if there are any of these left? And Jack disappears into the back, presumably to check his what's up. After a few minutes, he emerges from the back of the shop with a box. And this box contains the last of these mobile phones that they have. I'm interested. In fact, I'm beginning to eye the other customers in the shop with suspicion. Will they try to take it from me? I'm no longer the person who entered the shop. I'm in the grip of the scarcity heuristic. Now, I promise you I'm not an idiot. I know that Jill and Jack have a room in the back of the store that's probably stacked to the ceiling with these handsets. But even so, the fact that Jill told me there's a scarcity of the handset has increased my interest in it. As usual, the heuristic is quicker than any logical analysis of the situation. System 1 got there long before System 2 and is now calling the shots. So let's look for a moment at the mechanism here. By raising scarcity, Jill has changed my frame. And we're going to use this term frame quite a lot when we talk about heuristics. So let's define it. A frame is simply the way you're looking at something. The same glass of water proverbially can be half empty, which is a loss frame, or half full, which is a gain frame, depending on how you look at it. There is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so, as Hamlet tells Rosencrantz. Changing the frame doesn't change the phone or the glass of water or Denmark, but it does change the way you're looking at it. When Jill talked about the scarcity of the Samsung handset, it didn't change the handset, but it did change the way I felt about it. It moved me from a gain frame to a loss frame. We're going to get more into frames later because they are very powerful. They determine the way we think about a situation, talk about it, 
and react to it. They're usually unconscious. We can see that someone else's point of view is partial, but it's much more difficult for us to recognize that ours is. Remember, a gain frame means that I'm focused on what I could gain in the situation, and a loss frame means that I'm focused on what I could lose in the situation. And here's the science. In a lot of situations, the loss frame is more urgent than the gain frame. More urgent doesn't necessarily mean that the lost frame is more powerful, but it does mean that it's very effective in pushing you into action. If the product is running out before your eyes, you tend to grab it more quickly than if the shelves are full. Lost frames push you into action more easily than gain frames. Now, I have a feeling that listening to this might be making you feel a bit smug. You Maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, I mean, you might fall for that, but I would never fall for a ploy that transparent. But let's look at some evidence. First, consider this study from researchers at the University of Nottingham on PhD students registering for a conference. Group A receive a letter telling them that late registration will result in a penalty. Group B, receive a letter telling them that early registration will result in a discount. In both cases, the amounts and the dates are the same. And, as you can see, the situation being described is exactly the same. It's just that in the first case, it's being viewed in a loss frame, a penalty. And in the second case, it's being viewed in a gain frame as a discount. Now, in the first case, the loss frame... 93% of the students registered early when a penalty fee for late registration was emphasised. In the second case, when they were gain-framed, only 67% of them did. In other words, very simply, the loss frame got around 50% more compliance than the gain frame. A similar question influenced the early days of credit cards. Originally paying by credit card, incurred an extra cost for the purchaser. The credit card companies in the States successfully lobbied for the price difference to be labelled as a discount for cash, gain-framing the customer, rather than a surcharge for card, which would of course be loss-frame, because they anticipated that a loss-framed consumer would be more inclined to pay cash and so cost the credit card company's business. Clever them. Obviously, in both the university conference and the credit card example, the objective choice logically remains the same. The situation doesn't change. All that changes is the way you're looking at it. To requote Daniel Kahneman, we don't make decisions on the basis of information, we make decisions on the basis of the presentation of information. Me too. You too. And finally, consider a study from the University of Pennsylvania on professional golfers and their success in putting. I find this a particularly compelling and entertaining example of a lost frame in action. They are, quote, significantly more successful when putting to avoid a bogey, in other words, when they're lost framed because they're anxious not to go above par, than they are when putting to achieve a birdie gain-framed because they're hoping to go below par. So me, in the phone shop, PhD students, credit card consumers, professional golfers, 
The loss frame seems to work across a wide range of contexts and people. My guess is that it works on you too. Now, what does it mean for you as a manager, managing your team? Well, knowing this stuff is really useful for team leaders in one key area. It's a brilliant influencing tool, whether you're trying to influence your team, your peers, or your boss. Loss frames are very attractive influencing tools because they're pushy, they're shouty and urgent, where positive frames tend to be soft-spoken and gentle. If you just present the positives of your plan, you will probably get interest but you won't get action. Adding the loss frame, the cost of not acting, is what galvanizes people. You get more bang for your buck out of a negative frame. But remember, this is a heuristic. It's a rapid response mechanism rather than a long-term influencing strategy. You do get more bang for your buck out of a loss frame, but remember, you will get more sustainable long-term buy-in out of a gain frame. And there's a strong element of personality in all of this too. Whatever personality model you look at, there will be some significant correlation somewhere with loss aversion. Loss framing relates to conscientiousness in the Big Five, to a sensing preference in Myers-Briggs, and to an away-from motivation in NLP language patterns. Things are much less scientific here, but all of these models can be really useful in assessing how open an individual is to a loss-framed approach. A quick, dodgy, but very useful approach, it has no scientific virtue whatever, but it does have the virtue of usually working, is the NLP language pattern diagnosis. You simply ask someone repeatedly why is that important when talking about a future goal, and then you listen carefully to how your team member frames their reply. If the team member answers using words like attain, obtain, reach, have, get, achieve, they are naturally gain-framing themselves and they have a towards motivation pattern. If the team member answers using words like avoid, prevent, eliminate, solve, get rid of, they're naturally loss-framing themselves and have an away-from motivation pattern. Once you've identified the framing pattern, you need to adapt your influencing strategy to it. Emphasize the gain frame for the towards guys and the loss frame for the away from guys. Include both in any case and always close with the loss frame because it pushes people towards closure. But don't overdo the loss frame. Even the scarcity heuristic has its limits. Let me give you an example. And the example comes from Nokia. Now, you will be aware that when I was in the mobile phone shop in 2020 with Jill and Jack, the name Nokia did not come up. Although 12 years before, it would have been the biggest name in the store. Nokia has lost favor with consumers, but it's gained favor with business schools as a source of critical case histories. Cold case coming up. In 2008, Nokia had 40% of the world's mobile handset market, and the business schools, incidentally, were praising its agile strategy. But by 2011, the company was losing ground heavily. The CEO, Steve Elop, decided to use what's called a burning platform story to galvanize the company. 
A burning platform is a metaphor derived from a real incident in which someone jumped from a burning oil rig into the icy waters because it was the only way to survive, jump or die. In influencing terms, a burning platform is a kind of last-ditch scarcity pitch. And this is what Elop wrote in an internal Nokia email in 2011. Over the past few months, I've shared with you what I've heard from our shareholders, operators, developers, suppliers, and from you. Today, I'm going to share what I've learned and what I've come to believe. I have learned that we are standing on a burning platform and we have more than one explosion. We have multiple points of scorching heat that are fueling a blazing fire around us. Now this is cask strength, scarcity, heuristic from the CEO. It's an approach that produces maximum drama and urgency, but in organizational change, you need not only that sense of urgency, but also a sustainable sense of direction. And fear alone cannot give you that. You can't run a major change project on pure adrenaline. So clever salesmen very often introduce a loss frame at the end of the sales process. The offer's only valid for 24 hours, for example. But they pitch the product in a gain frame because that is how they get sustainable buy-in. It's also worth remembering that the boy in Aesop's story actually lost influence by overdoing the wolf stuff. So ultimately, you need to balance loss frames and gain frames in your influencing. Take Moses. Moses had the major problem of persuading the Israelites to leave Egypt. In influencing terms, he had a choice. He could gain frame things, promised land, flowing with milk and honey, etc. Or he could loss frame things, pestilences, impossible working conditions, etc. The loss frame would give a sense of urgency and get people moving. But he also needed a gain frame if the journey to the promised land was to be sustained over time. So he needed a loss frame to get the people out and a gain frame to sustain them in their journey once their fear of Pharaoh had worn off. You might usefully think about Moses next time you're taking your team through a change project. There's a guru on this stuff who's well worth reading. His name is Peter Fowder, and I'm going to close with some wisdom from him about loss frames and gain frames. After five years of intense research and 12 years of practice, I have come to understand the limitations of the burning platform. Yes, some urgency can help motivate to commence a journey of transformation, but it's not what enables people to sustain their journeys over time. What we have found is that aspiration is a far more important motivator. Sustainable change requires the fire of a burning ambition. So that's the scarcity heuristic in action, and that's the second of these podcasts finished. Thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to joining you again soon with another of these podcasts, People at Work. In the meantime, any comments, any feedback, drop a line to me. I'm Oliver, Oliver Hibbert. Uh, drop me a line at email, oliver at olintel.com. Look forward to joining you soon. In the meantime, stay well. Stay safe. Bye.